0: Because when you when you are talking on a radio to people in their homes and you, you can't they can't go back and reread what you're saying what you're saying um, in a book though you can make different kinds of arguments and, and so he recognizes that there are some big differences between the books and the talks and and he and he has a very lengthy explanation as to why um, the other thing that he does is explain what he's trying to do in the introduction so uh, the chapter there's a chapter. I'm reading about this in a book uh, by Marsden. It's a biography of Mere Christianity. The book, and and he talks about the fact that Mere Christianity is like an accidental classic. Um, Like nobody made a big deal when he put Mere Christianity out because the three pamphlets had already been out for a long time. And and people, he didn't. C.S. Lewis was worried people were going to buy this book thinking it was something new, and it wasn't. But the the so so what he does is he explains what he's not doing. So if he's not trying to make us Anglicans, okay? His job his is not to be an apologist for Anglicanism. He says, if you want to know what the Anglican church uh, thinks about things, read the 39 articles. He also describes that he's not just trying to tell you his version of, of Christianity because he thinks that doesn't matter. Uh, like, I shouldn't be espousing my, my reality to you or your reality to me. What we should be talking about is reality, right? What reality actually is. And if you remember when we talked about the Correspondent's Theory of Truth, this is a big deal to him. He doesn't care what your personal opinions are. He doesn't really care to tell you what his opinions are. He wants to talk about truth, reality. The other thing he is, says he's doing is <clears throat> espousing, teaching something that he called...
1: <laughs> None of them work.
0: One <laughs> well, of the ones I've used so far. Something that he calls mere Christianity. Now, do you guys know where this phrase originated he didn't make it up. Well, he did not make it up. It, it was, was one that already existed in the other book. It might have been the screw tape letters, but the, those the devil's always trying to be Christianity in this, Christianity in yeah. that, Christianity and vegetarianism. Yeah, right, right. <gasps> Christianity, vegetarianism, <laughs> Christianity. In you but just plain Christianity. Yeah. So this idea pops up several times. He talks about it in the introduction to um, the translation of Incarnation by um, Athanasius. We read that essay. It's called uh, On Reading Old Books. He talked about the in Screwtape Letters. Uh, he talks about it in several other places. But this uh, this idea comes from someone named Richard Baxter. <coughs> you guys know who that is? No. OK, so Richard, see, there we go. Oh, I, I, assumed, I assumed everyone knew this. So I wasn't even going to oh, talk about I, this, but we we did did it. Oh. here we go. I couldn't remember. OK. <laughs> you were, yeah, because you read the biography. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was a Puritan, right? He was a Puritan, so he wasn't just a Puritan, though. Okay. So the the key about Richard Baxter to understanding C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis was working on something they called the O. Hell book, the Oxford History of English Literature in the Sixteenth Century minus Drama. That's the title of the book. I actually finally have a copy next door. I can show it to you. Wow. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful <laughs> book. Anyway, I finally own a copy. Um, but so what he had to do is he went back and he read all the English literature from the Reformation period, excluding drama okay, so one of the people that he loved was Richard Baxter, and Richard Baxter is is famous because um, and tell tell me if this sounds familiar, everyone thought Richard Baxter was of them so the Presbyterians thought Richard Baxter was a Presbyterian, and the Baptists thought he was a Baptist, and the nonconformists thought he was a nonconformist, and the Anglicans everybody tries to lay claim to Richard Baxter um, but in the reality, in, in truth, when he was alive, he made everyone angry. So he, 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 when he was alive, was accepted by no one. So when the Catholics were in charge, they persecuted him. When the Protestants were in charge, they persecuted him. And, and, but he was a very faithful minister, and he wasn't allowed to go to the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Assembly when they were writing the confession because he was a nonconformist. He, he, wouldn't, he didn't subscribe to the ideas but he actually wrote a ton of letters um, that if you compare to the minutes of the confession of uh, the assembly, he actually had a huge influence on what happened there but he wrote in a book uh, he would talk about being a mere Christian so he, he writes this phrase all the time so C.S. Lewis in his research for the O'Hell book sees Baxter talking about this idea Something to ease, by the way. Huh? I know that's how it's spelled, actually. In in Baxter's days, older. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. See, I was trying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For once, I misspelled it on purpose. (laughs) So. What what Baxter thought in his day, given given the fact that they had just been through all of the trouble that they had been through over the after the Reformation period, lots of Christians died. Lots right, the Catholics would persecute, the Protestants would persecute, everyone's persecuting. So he he his whole project was espousing this idea of just Christianity, right? Apostolic, uh, Bible-based Christianity. And can't the Catholics and the Protestants and the and the um, Anabaptists, and everybody sit down and just, let's talk about what we actually agree on, instead of starting with what we don't agree on, Mm -hmm. and so he was kind of a hero of C.S. Lewis's, which we see C.S. Lewis as this this guy so when C.S. Lewis had written the more, the later beyond personality once he starts getting into the actual theology okay, when he's not just making apologist arguments, he sent the manuscripts to a Methodist a Roman Catholic, a Presbyterian and an Anglican minister. And he said, read this and tell me if you guys all agree. And for the most part, everyone agreed with what he had to say. So C.S. Lewis, at this point, funny enough, is somebody that everyone lays claim to. So Eastern Orthodox people think he was cl- a closet Eastern Orthodox. The Catholics <laughs> think he was an Anglo-Catholic, uh, which he wasn't. Um, American evangelicals think he, uh, we, you know, they, they joke about how we don't have saints, but we really do you know, C.S. Lewis is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Spurgeon is another. Yeah. Um, so we tend to have saints, but they're all Englishmen or Irishmen. So this idea about mere Christianity was really important to him because he thought it was something that Christianity needed badly. It was a rallying point for everyone who takes Christianity seriously to come and agree on these ideas so that um, they, they would be more effective. Uh, in the world, opposed to always being so schismatic. So in the introduction he says some interesting things Uh, he says for example for I'm not writing to expound something I could call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity, which is what it is and what it was long before I was born and whether I like it or not so this is what he wanted he wanted Christians to agree on what's true or not and it was true before we were born, it will be true after we die So this turns out to be something not only positive, but pungent, divided from all non-Christian beliefs by a chasm to which the worst divisions inside Christendom are not really comparable at all. And I I find that quite refreshing to read. um, Can you read
1: that sentence again, please? I will.
0: Uh, It turns out to be something not only positive, but pungent divided from all non-Christian beliefs by a chasm to which the worst divisions inside Christendom are not really comparable at all. Yeah. So what divides us is nothing like what divides us from the world. And what, what I find is in times, I mean, I think this is very useful to us right now, because what we're, what we're seeing is there are some people, in our, some Christians in our, in our family, bigger Christian family, who want to say that the differences between us and the world aren't big. And what we need to realize is that the differences inside the church are nothing compared to the differences between the church and the world. And and I think this is one of the things that people are starting to wake up to in, in our age. There is no neutrality. He goes on to say of Mere Christianity, It is at her center where her truest children dwell, and each communion is really closest to every other in spirit, if not in doctrine. And this suggests that at the center of each, there is something or someone who, against all divergences of belief, all differences of temperament, all memories of mutual persecution, speaks with the same voice. Okay. So what is he essentially saying there? Does that remind anyone of a particular Bible verse? Something Jesus said about himself. Something about sheep. At the center of all of, of, of Christendom, all the denominations are actually closer to one another than we realize, because at the center of all of them, whether you're a Greek Orthodox, a Roman Catholic, a Protestant, a Presbyterian, whatever, the people who really know Jesus are all more alike one another than they are dislike one another. And, and I find that this is actually completely true. Um, There are men that I know who love Jesus, and and it doesn't matter what denomination they're in or even what communion they're in. I recognize them when I meet them. Um, And and so Jesus said, right, the sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So you have at the center of Christendom sheep following his voice. Now, now, you know, why all the differences then? And he talks about the fact he's not here to discuss that. He's like usually controversies amongst most Christians come down to ecclesiology and history. <laughs> who's in charge and how did they become in charge? <laughs> so you're talking about ecclesiology and sure. and yeah and history. How did we get here? Um, because even amongst, you know, it's really funny with the Eastern Orthodox guys and the Roman Catholics. Because all they're talking about is who's po- po- pope, excuse me. Whose pope is ultimately the chief pope? And all the Eastern Orthodox guys say, "Well, the Roman, the Roman Pontiff, okay, the the Bishop of Rome, is superior to all the others, but not like the way the Roman Catholics make it seem." (laughs) I
1: don't
0: know. It's not helpful to (laughs) me. As an outsider, I don't understand that at all. Okay. Now, what what we call this um, is ecumenical. This is an oh my gosh, such a difficult word. Ecumenical movement. Okay, and that's this idea that at the center of all denominations, there's more that unites us than divides us. Okay, um, Irene, or I Irenists—they call these guys. There's this movement now. I think Irenists. I, I, it's a really weird word, but and I'm not really sure where it comes from. But the, there's this group of guys, the Cyprian. If you ever, if you, you guys listen to podcasts and stuffs stuff, no? Okay, well there's the Mirror Orthodoxy is a website um, the Cyprian Kui- something, something, there's these guys in the CRC and all these other denominations who have teamed up in these different groups and this is what they're going for, Mirror Christendom um, and Doug Wilson of all people talks all the time about Mere Christendom about restoring Mere Christendom okay, so this idea I think also is really interesting he talks about it in reading old books and in that work he says this but if any man is tempted to think, as one might be tempted who re- read only their contemporaries, that Christianity is a word of so many meanings that it means nothing at all, he can learn beyond all doubt by stepping out of his own century that this is not, not so. Measured against the ages, mere Christianity turns out to be no insepid, interdenominational transparency, but something positive, self-consistent, and inoxi- inox inox. <laughs> I don't want to know what the word is. I know. I, I, on Friday, I had to have um, Natalie, her sister, read this word because I couldn't yeah. even read her Inexhaustible. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> oh. Now the. I quite, thought, it was like, I, thought <laughs> I had to read Say it again. <laughs> say it. Yeah. See, I hear it. Say, say the word again.
1: Inexhaustible.
0: Inexhaustible. Everybody's yeah. together now. I can't Inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. <laughs> like I understand what it means, and I right. see it, and I, when I go to say it myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's the, it's the EXH. I, my mind sees the EXH and I just give up. So on Friday, I had to have one of my students read that word for me. That's funny. I forgot about that, till right now. So he also said um, in reading old books that he, he uh, hated it because he loved literature. And when he was a unbeliever, and he was reading this literature that he loved. He would he would read Dante, and he would read um, Richard Hooker, and he would read Pir- the Puritan Bunyan, and he would recognize this mere Christianity before he was even a Christian. He hated it. He's like, these people all seem to be drinking from the same well, <laughs> following the same voice. And he... He said that he recognized this before he became a Christian. So then once he was a Christian, this was a big argument for him about what might unite Christians. There is this voice at the center. His his voice is Jesus. Okay. Um, So one of the the ways he, at the very end of his introduction to mere Christianity, he explains this whole thing using a handy metaphor because it's C.S. Lewis. Of course he does. So he says it's a doctrinal hallway. He has this very lengthy explanation about how what he's presenting is a hallway. So there's a house, and and the house has all these rooms, and in the rooms you're going to find fires and people and conversations and liturgies and communions. But the hallway to get into all those rooms is what he's talking about. You come into the house, into the hallway, you're a Christian. What door you go through after that is kind of your own business. Please pray for the people who are still standing in the hall, please pray for the people in the other rooms. But all he wants to do is, is, is bring people into the hallway. That's his whole project with the book, Mere Christianity. And that's why it's been so potent and powerful. From Chuck Colson, who was converted reading it, to they literally, I think, Wheaton is a college. They actually keep a list of people. You can go there and give your testimony about how you were converted reading Mere Christianity. Um, and they just collect these stories. because So many people have been converted reading it. So many people have come into the hallway, which is exactly what he was hoping to do what is amazing is how successful he was at it um, okay so now what we do is we turn uh, the two videos were actually end up being chapter one and chapter three of his um, book and then in, in chapter two is just he deals with some um, arguments against what he's saying and, and if we have time we'll talk about uh, the argument about witches um, <laughs> well you guys used to burn witches like, uh, yeah we did yeah. <laughs> Okay so I'm just going to ask some questions now We're going to open this baby up We're going to talk about what you guys have learned thus far And explain the first two, These first two videos To one another So the first question is What is the everyday behavior That Lewis bases his entire argument on What's at the very heart of this He opens the whole thing up With an everyday activity that we all participate in What is the Like Appealing to a Law, standard? law? We Hold on. Quirl. That's quirrell. it. We argue with yeah. one yeah. another. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> quarrel. I already know how to spell quarrel. <laughs> we couldn't read it anyway, so
0: that's okay.
1: We'll
0: start with a Q. Just
1: keep talking.
0: Okay. So, what are some examples of quarreling? Um, I was there first. I was there first, right? Yeah, it's easy if you have kids. Yeah. Because you're like, it's my my seat. What if someone did that to you? Yeah, what if someone did that to you? And and what's funny is if you think about this, like, lots of examples of little children. But what I see all the time on Facebook is this argument. Well, if the Democrat, if the Republicans did this, the Democrats would freak out. And this is like, I'm mm. like, can anybody come up with a better argument than this? This is like the number one argument right now. <laughs> if the shoe is on the other foot, yeah, I'm sure yeah. they would freak out. Yes, I'm sure they would. <clears throat> Think higher. Yeah. So, do you guys, as adults, have examples? What are some, Laura? How do you quarrel with people?
1: I live alone. You <laughs> have to look in the mirror to fight
0: uh, You have to look in the mirror to fight? I don't know, I've quarreled with you a few times
1: <laughs> Were you not here yeah. for his sermon last week? No, I was not no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And I was told I probably didn't want to hear it Yeah. No?
1: There was, there was some uh, under the breath quarreling
0: There was some under the breath quarreling? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, like women do it passive aggressively Yeah They won't outright quarrel with you They will give you the silent treatment. Yeah. Which, a silent quarrel, apparently. Is rather
0: frustrating to me. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> now, wait—are you, are you making a generalization, or are you saying spe- specifically from last week? <laughs> Steve Brown said, if I followed that sermon up with a sermon on tithing, then the church would diminish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Laura, you should really go back and give it a listen. I it said, was
1: okay. I, s- I said t- I was at signal hand. He was a doozy. I, I wanted—I said, how was the sermon? You know, what is, did you talk about? And I said because I want to listen to it. And Steve says, no, you don't. <laughs> so I'm a little
0: yeah. Uh, I went. I uh, me. When yes, I was in there. Yes, totally. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, now I don't know how to move on from that. Yeah. I I, I checked down massively this week. We're just going to go back to one Samuel thirty-one <laughs> and <laughs> just talk about the text. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because even when I, like, so all the pastors who were going to preach on, like, on the same topic last week were like, oh, hey, how'd to go. And I tried to, dis- like, and they're describing what they did. And I described what I did, and, and I, it was just crickets. Because like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. apparently everybody else just got up and did a sermon on, like, the government needs to remember its place kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and we're all sinners, so we should be more kind. And, and it was sort of like, I don't know, I wasn't super we're recording this part. I wasn't super impressed. We should take this part out. <laughs> 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 but I may have overdone it. Anyway, so here, see, we're We quarrel. Yeah, yeah you go listen so yeah, I just yeah. keep my
1: mind. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: And what are you appealing to, right? When you find that people are not. Your,
1: your sense of right and wrong. Your sense of <laughs> right and wrong,
0: right? That's what we're all appealing to. True. Now, how is the law of gravity and the law of human behavior different? Okay, so he goes on to make his point about the human the law of human behavior. He compares it to several different things. The first thing he says is it's not like gravity.
1: Well, gravity is just a description of what happens. Yeah, It's not actually it. it. Its laws are the same wherever yeah. and it's, whoever but and it it is being affected by it.
0: Right. So the, do, do rocks decide to fall? Nope. And can they in any way resist them? No. No. And when we resist the laws of of gravity, what are we actually doing, right? Like, how does an airplane defy the laws of gravity? <laughs> We're using other forces in physics. Yeah, you're using right, other it's forces. Using other it's ones. using other laws, other right? right? Right, right. Yeah. So, so and, and when you, when you excel at a particular rate, and the thing is shaped a certain way, and it weighs a certain amount, it's going to, it's going to now defy gravity. But the forces of gravity are actually what's working on it to make it work. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like you bypass gravity entirely. You're harnessing gravity and other forces in order to lift the thing off the ground. Okay? Um, and nobody and nothing decides to defy the law of gravity. It's like you're falling downstairs, you're falling downstairs. Okay. Unless you're What's that? That's your uh, Yeah, exactly. Now, um, how is the law of human behavior uh, and, and mathematics similar? So he first says that gravity and the law of human behavior are different. He then says mathematics and the law of human behavior are similar. There, there's to a degree universal no matter where you go? Yes, right? So is 2 plus 2 always 4? Okay. And what happens as soon as 2 plus 2 equals 5? That actually, if you could actually make that happen, what happens to like the fabric uh, of creation? 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> right? So you have these universal uh, laws of human behavior, and what happens when you defy them? Well, the same exact thing, right, if you disobey them, the same exact thing happens is, is if you make 2 plus 2 equal 5, chaos. Right? like, And what do we see right now? We see chaos. utter chaos. There's no such thing as a, as a woman, but my gosh, we're going to have women's rights. Right? And, and it's like, are, are we going to have women's rights? Are we going to have women at all? I don't even understand what we're talking about anymore when it comes to this. Um, yeah, OK, so um, did you guys see this? What, what's his name, Matt Walsh? Yes. Yeah, OK, so he was on some show. Dr. Phil, Dr. he's on Phil. Dr. Phil yeah. and he's trying to get the transvestites to, to, to define the word woman and like not only can they not define what a woman is they won't re- re- define, can't define it they're like aghast that he would ask such a thing
1: yeah. well they did the common trope that they do now which it's not for me to define yeah. it's for you to define yourself because we all define our own do. truth
0: Right, we all make up our own and, truth
1: and you know Dr. Phil's just sitting there like
0: <laughs> and
1: the dude has long hair, makeup, and a beard. And on. a
0: beard—that was my favorite part. Yeah, like, yeah, and the whole <laughs> conversation—it's like Matt Walsh doesn't know what to do. Like, after a while, he's like, "Okay."
1: <laughs> and we all know that that argument is circular and terrible. Right. Right. Yeah. But we have no. No, we don't have like an no
0: do answer <laughs> to it,
1: yeah. but at a certain point, you do have to, like, I wanted Matt Walsh to just sit and let the guy, like, the more you Not let them, yes, yeah. Yeah. keep going yeah. with that argument, <laughs> yeah, yeah, even so. though that person has convinced themselves they mm-hmm. have won. Everyone around them who's not fully bought in sees. Yeah, the
0: incentive. Totally. The incentive. <laughs> Insane, yeah. Two plus two equals five, yeah. and I mean, and this is the same thing with Mark. Like, if you don't have property rights, um, the same thing happens, right? You ha- like property rights, like people owning things. I have something, and this is mine. You have something, and that's yours. Is a law of, of human behavior. It's a law that exists, just like 2 plus 2 equals 4. And as soon as you take that kind of thing away, it's chaos. Mm-hmm. It's total chaos. Um, and, and so this is, it's very helpful to explain it. It's like mathematics, right? It just is there. You can't do anything. <laughs> math, math is true when we were, if all of the math was already true when I was born. It will still be true when I am dead and I can't change it. Okay, so why does he think that we feel the law of human behavior weighing down on us? What he says, people prove all the time that the law of human behavior is weighing down on them. And what does he use to prove that? If you recall. Well, he, he says, yes, it's true, but it doesn't apply to me because of some special reason. Yes, we make, you make ever excuses. Doesn't apply right, we, we make excuses and justifications. I took the seat. Uh, I stole your seat on the bus because I just worked 10 hours. I just, I just read this article, this obscene opinion piece about the fact that we've, this guy would not give up a seat to a pregnant woman and, and he told the pregnant woman, you made the decision to be pregnant. You made the decision to carry this baby. You made the decision to be uncomfortable and so you've got to live with your decisions.
1: Uh, 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 uh. Boy. <laughs> Talk about an excuse.
0: And we'll he had we'll this look. whole argument, and it was this no. opinion piece in some lib rag about the fact that we've, we've got to move beyond this idea that we take special care of pregnant women. Like, literally, was his argument. And I you're think just we like. We've moved
1: beyond it already.
0: I think we have.
1: My, yeah. my niece, who was pregnant, this is eight years ago, commuting from Seattle to Edmonds on the bus, often had a. She's seven months pregnant.
0: Yep. We give a receipt for her. No. Because what, what have we said, right? You're making a choice about getting pregnant. You, you, you own it now. You're, respons- you're responsible for that. You don't get any special privilege. Right? If you don't want to stand there with, on your achy feet when you're seven months pregnant, don't get pregnant. I mean, this is literally the guy's argument. And, and so he, he, his whole, he, his conscience was clearly troubled. And what he's trying to do is, is reconcile. Justify. It. Yeah, he's trying to justify it. And now yeah. what he's going is going public because he, he wants other people to affirm that this idea is good. Mm. Um, and this is what you see people doing with this kind of ethical stuff. Um, they try to, right, we've justified the murder of infants in the womb for all, right? It's OK because we're saving them from poverty. Uh, this is the argument that my um, a family member of mine uses with me all the time. Don't you love, I mean, don't you want to prevent people from being poor? Do you want to be poor? Do you want these poor people running around hungry and sick? <laughs> so the whole thing um, is just demonstrated in everyday behavior. Anytime somebody starts justifying themselves uh, They are proving the fact that they don't obey the law and it bothers them. Okay, so what are the two assertions that Lewis establishes in the first talk? What are the two assertions? At the very end, he summarizes At the very end of the first chapter, he summarizes it in one little paragraph. There There is a law of human nature, but we disobey it all the time. We disobey it all the time. That's it. And see, so he hasn't mentioned Christianity yet. Because that's not what he's starting with It's very, very clever what he's doing He's just talking, he's using logic He's using evidence He's, he's using reason And he's using universal truths um, In order to build up to Christianity um, And I find that this is uh, The way to go <laughs> Generally what too many of us Try to do is we start with the cross And then you know We, we work from there But the, the fact that he starts with an everyday experience That everyone does yeah. Everyone's been quarreled Everyone has justified themselves Everyone has had other people justify themselves And, and you work from these kind of small common things To larger questions So uh, just to Fill in what he's done uh, He talks about ethics in pianos And what he says is that um, <coughs> There's no such thing as good or bad Impulses Think of a piano It's, it's not two kind of notes on it, the right notes and the wrong ones. Every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. The moral law is not only one instinct or set of instincts, it is something which makes a kind of tune, the tune we call goodness or right conduct. Okay? So, if you have a piano there and that's like your impulses and you can play your impulses in the wrong order and, it, and it's discord, right? It's discord and it sounds terrible and the behavior that you do is terrible. You play the right impulses in the right order and it makes a beautiful uh, music, right? So this is why marriage, covenanted marriage monogamous marriage is a beautiful song anything other than that is uh, out of tune it's a a bad tune Um, a man who is taking care of his children, taking care of his wife it's a beautiful song, right? so um, a a lady who's growing in beauty and, and, and wisdom and exercising it is a beautiful song, right? So th- this is what he's talking about. We're playing these impulses like we play on a piano. OK. So his other argument that he has, this is in that second chapter that wasn't assigned to us. He talks about witches. And he's dealing with a bunch of um, like arguments people have sent to him. And uh, uh, yeah, I've met people who exaggerate the difference because they have not distinguished between differences of morality and differences of belief about facts. For example, one man said to me 300 years ago, people in England were putting witches to death. Was that what you call the rule of human nature or right conduct? But surely, the reason we do not execute witches is that we do not believe there are such things. If we did, if we really thought there were people going about who had sold themselves to the devil and received supernatural powers from him in return, and were using those powers to kill their neighbors and drive them mad and bring bad weather... Surely we would all agree that if anyone deserved the death penalty, then these filthy quizlings did. (laughs) There is no difference of moral principle here. The difference is simply um, about facts. It may be a great advance in knowledge not to believe in witches. There is no moral advance in not executing them when you do not think they are there. You would not call a man humane for ceasing to set mousetraps if he did so because he, he believed there were no mice in his house. I love that list, <laughs> right? So we don't burn witches anymore. Isn't a, isn't a what? It's not progress in morals. It's a progress in knowledge, yeah. um, because we understand how these things work. Now, are there witches? Sure, there are women who make covenants and there are wiccans and they all this crazy stuff. But we're not standing out with all these dead pigs in the backyard, blaming the woman who lives down on the edge of the woods because she's weird. Um, which I mean, a lot of the witch hunting back in the day. The, yeah, we don't understand what's happened to us. Therefore, you must be a witch. <laughs> yeah, and so what's that Right, but if there were witches, if there really were people selling their souls to Satan and killing their neighbors with this power, we, of course we would put them to death. We would have to. So it's this is the kind of, it's like the Crusades. People I'm
1: referring to like the behavior in the '60s, though. What do you mean? Because now there's just this whole um, slew of people on TikTok. Because one person who has a verifiable multi-personality disorder, Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden there are a thousand people with this disorder, and it's clear some of them are demon-possessed. And if one of their personalities did something in our justice system today, they would just be declared mentally disabled, and they wouldn't be put to death because they did not know what they were doing.
0: Yes. So I would say...
1: Lewis's argument for the 60s in the time or is he referring back to the 300
0: well I mean I think he's thinking he says there aren't witches and I would say that's where I would argue with him I think you have to be careful there because mm-hmm. it is true people who um, the spiritual realm especially if you do any kind of counseling is something that people dis, just like we are modern materialists who don't think it exists
1: yeah. right. or um, drug, drug
0: users drug users mm-hmm. right because there's a mentally ill person I know who is schizophrenic but the schizophrenia is, is directed towards... He's constantly wanting to turn himself into the police. And he thinks all the police are after him. He thinks the police are poisoning his coffee. He changes where he buys groceries and stuff because he thinks they're going to kill him. And, it, and, and over time, what I've discovered is that there is some massive amount of guilt here. He thinks he belongs... He thinks he should be turned over to the authorities. And, and so his whole mental illness has to do with something that I believe that has occurred because he was normal, and then in his mid-30s, he just became schizophrenic overnight. Something happened. Yeah. Right? And so I, I disagree with Lewis in the fact that he just dismisses the supernatural in one sense here, even though he's like Mr. Supernatural. Yeah. He's all about like miracles and I didn't Actually, I didn't
1: take that he dismissed the supernatural. I thought, oh, okay. I honestly read it quite differently. As like, okay, today in the modern world, we say there are no witches. I wasn't saying that he... I didn't believe that. Oh, okay. He thought that, sure. but I think he was saying, this is where well, modern man is that? we deny it. I see. Because so I
0: you mean, think he was speaking more of modern man, not himself? I did. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I helpful. Did. But
1: you've read more of him than I have.
0: Well, no, because I would say that's more consistent because other, in other places he's, all, he's constantly talking about the supernatural. Yes. So he's just saying, he's not saying me, he's saying us. Uh, like us. us. Oh, okay. well, man We
1: think we're beyond
0: that. Right. Yes. We think we're beyond it's that. Better. <laughs> but if they really did believe in such a thing, It would really put them to death. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. we just don't believe in it. We just don't believe in it, right. it. Yeah, so I mean, these are the kinds of arguments because what, what happened after he started doing these talks is that he, he started to receive thousands of letters. And he personally felt responsible to respond to them. So he would get some nut ones, right? Like, I married a man when, uh, when I was 20 and I don't really love him. And he would just not respond to those people. Um, but he tried to answer letters. And, and it became a huge part of his life. And eventually, Warney, his brother, helped him type up these These letters, Um, and that's where a lot of like chapter two is. He received the letters, arguing with his radio talks, and he responded to those arguments because he got he would like categorize them. I got a bunch of this one, and the witches one was one he got. He got a lot, Um, and so that's what I like is you see how he presents an argument, defends the argument, and then defends uh, when people bring. Um, counter arguments. He defends himself against those counter arguments. So as we go along, there'll be chapters like this throughout where they don't have this CSO as doodle. Um, but if you go look in the book, you'll you'll see how he dealt with the counter arguments. Um, but the poor man, he really I don't he really didn't need to answer all those letters. And people could have helped him out. Like if they would have published the talks originally in the magazine the BBC had. Then they would have sent the letters to the BBC, not to C.S. Lewis. But I mean, like, literally, they just gave him his Oxford address. <laughs> I mean, hundreds. It took him hours every day to respond to all these things. And the worst part, this was the part that he used to complain about all the time privately to friends, is because the, the war was on, and so there was rationing, and so he, there wasn't paper. So he would famously write responses on, like, you'd get, like, literally, like, a little folded up scrap, like, this big with a stamp on it. And you open it up, and it's like a two-word answer. Or, you know. Two-sentence. Yeah, two-sentence answer, two-word answer, very short answers. Uh, so the people at the BBC started to give him paper because they were tired of getting these, like, <laughs> hardly recognizable. Like, what are you saying? Because <laughs> he was rationing his paper. So, but it was the letter writing that caused him to do it. Yes, All right, any questions? Okay, we're going to shoot for being on time next week. Okay? Pray for me. <laughs> yep. Pray for me. Thank you, everyone. You guys have a good day. Thank you. Pray us out. What's that? True praise. True praise out. Oh yeah, yeah. What's the do you do that, man? Let's do that. Pray <laughs> us out. Yeah. All right. Woo! Lord, thank you for gathering us today. Thank you for the wisdom, uh, Lewis. And may we continue to uh, remember that there is much that unites uh, the body of Christ, and may we cling to that. And may uh, you be our comfort and our strength. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen.